Becoming the expert in your own home can mean a lot of different things. It might be rattling off the square footage of your roof to a potential contractor on a call without thinking. It might be having handy access to documents about the repair and maintenance of your furnace or water heater. Or it might just mean knowing some interesting history of who built your home and why they made some of their choices. All of this information, from dimensions on a floor plan sketch to archival advertising of your home's builder, falls into the category of home improvement planning I call discovery. And while it might not seem like your most pressing concern when you're trying to pick out backsplash tile or nail down contractor bids, it has a purpose. The more you know about your home, the more you are empowered to make confident and correct for you choices. So tune in today for the second half of my talk with Adam Stevens about where his decades deep dive into Cliff May has taken him to the tracks in California, Denver, Las Vegas, and Dallas, each built by local builders. He knows more about Cliff May than most people ever will. And he's telling us how he discovered this and what that discovery has meant to him in today's interview. Hi there. Welcome back to Mid-Mod Remodel. This is the show about updating MCM homes, helping you match a mid-century home to your modern life. I'm your host, Della Hansman, architect and mid-century ranch enthusiast. You're listening to Season 11, Episode 4. Before we get started, my resource of the week is my free DIY home assessment workbook. This is a guide to collecting the basic information about your home, from roof pitch to reference photos, and it can make a great jumping off point for documenting your house and becoming a true expert in your own home. Grab it at midmod-midwest.com resources. If you want to go further into mastering your home remodel, this is only the beginning. Following the steps of the mid-century master plan method will take you on a journey of self-reflection, home discovery, style focusing, and layout brainstorming that will lead to a remodel that's just right for you and let you do all those things in the most efficient way possible, because you'd probably rather spend your time living in your improved home than stressing about it for longer than necessary. So before we get into the interview, I want to let you know that this is a really great time to learn more about, and I would say, join the Ready to Remodel program. That's because while it always offers the step-by-step actions you'll want to take to plan a remodel, with on-demand video lessons, workbooks, guides, examples, and more to walk you through the remodel process on your own, and monthly live support Zoom calls with me, plus anytime access to our Facebook community of fellow mid-century updaters, we're about to start another Remod Squad. These home improvement energy bursts involve weekly support calls to take you through the steps of the program in sync with a group of other mid-century homeowners so you can build on that collective energy and make plans happen more quickly. Those calls are kicking off on Monday, February 6th, so sign up before then to join this squad. You can learn more about Ready to Remodel and our Remod Squads by watching my free recorded masterclass, Planning a Mid-Century Remodel to Fit Your Life and Budget. There's a link in the show notes at midmod-midwest.com slash 1104, or get your invite directly at midmod-midwest.com slash ready to remodel. Okay, let's talk to Adam. So you bought your house 18 years ago. You didn't know what it was. Was there anyone in your neighborhood at all who knew what they had or thought it was cool that you were aware there of? There was, um, but not many. <laughs> right. Um What's interesting is, so Harvey Park, to to kind of describe the geography, we're in southwest Denver, an area that was built in the 1950s, so it's all Mm mid-century. In the Harvey Park neighborhood there, it's a huge neighborhood. There are 4,300 houses. Of those 4,300 houses, only 170 of them are Cliff May homes. 
And for decades and decades, so Cliff May homes have these cedar exteriors. The only brick they have on them is the chimney, the fireplace. Right. Um, And through the decades, there was this notion that um, in Harvey Park, if it's not brick, it's crap. So you could actually get a Cliff May home for really cheap not that long ago because people had no idea what these were about. They had no idea that they were something to be appreciated. They just thought these homes have no basement. They're smaller than all the other homes in the neighborhood. They don't have brick exteriors. Like, what's the advantage? You know, why why would anybody pay a lot of money for this these houses? And so overlooked and and looked down we, upon. Oh my gosh! Yeah, absolutely. So we get we got a great deal in our house. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of distressed properties among the Cliff May homes. A lot of them that you know, it's funny. Um, Right. Atomic Ranch Magazine did an article in Harvey Park of a different kind of home called a Kerry Holiday Home. Um, I don't remember what year. I want to say like 2008 or something like that. Um, where when they interviewed the homeowner, one of the quotes from the homeowner is he described the Cliff May homes as being because he knew what they were. He described them as being a near condemnation condition and that he wished he could just haul them out to California and sell them for <laughs> the more than you know, hundred and thirty thousand dollars or whatever they were worth at that time, um, and so that was real telling for. <laughs> That's so interesting. So in California, there was more of an appreciation for Cliff May already in two thousand eight, for example, but not in Denver. I mean, I saw when I came to Denver. Denver is a brick town, and I learned a little bit about the history of that being uh, a choice by the city fathers after a big fire, and also kind of a and yeah. Uh, best in brick money-making scheme, but <laughs> certainly, you know, it goes all the way back to our children's stories. The house that the third little pig built is built from brick, solid. Yep. The sturdy house is the brick house. Mm-hmm. Um, and here in the Midwest, our tract, our mid-century tract homes are not necessarily, they're mostly not built of brick, but they usually have some brick decoration on them because of that class factor of like, oh, well, it's got some brick. Um, <laughs> It's now as a as a mid-century remodeler, I much prefer a house that's stick framed rather than one with a brick siding or a brick structure because it's so much easier to modify to put a small addition on right. wall to change to extend a window. But right. uh, even here in Harvey Park, not all the brick houses are the same. A lot of people don't know this, <laughs> but it's one of those little things I've been able to figure out. Um, is all the houses, it's brick veneer, it's brick siding. Right. However, not all of them are frame buildings. Oh. So there's one builder, actually, there were two builders in the neighborhood that actually built with block construction with brick veneer on the outside. So they called it double masonry construction. So it was block with brick veneer and then plaster interiors in 1955, still doing plaster interiors. So we have, we have about five or 600 homes in the neighborhood that still have plaster interiors and that old world double masonry construction. So, and that was, as we were talking about in the last podcast, this notion of every builder was trying to figure out what's the value I'm going to bring to this generation right. for those builders. That was it. I'm bringing you old world sturdiness and, and like. With, with modern <laughs> practicality of a block form. I bet the homeowners yep. who buy those houses planning to remodel them are are nastily surprised. It's a little more challenging for them, I'm sure. I once came across, this is totally off the topic, but I once came across this fascinating 50s era advertising pamphlet for homes built from concrete, like fully concrete walls, concrete interior walls, 
with channels for the plumbing and electrical. Wow. This was their idea of home of the future. And right. That to me, I was like, this is so fascinating and sounds like it would be impossible to insulate, impossible to make changes, <laughs> to, impossible to repair. Oh my God, a nightmare. But well, one interesting to thing too, you know, going back to the Cliff May homes, <laughs> you know, one of the things Cliff May did in California that that he felt like really distinguished the homes he was designing is that all of them in California were slab on grade. Right. Which is um, how, how the Cliff May homes, it's an it's interesting how the Cliff May homes escaped California, because we didn't really talk about that in the last, I, I alluded to it, but I didn't really talk about it, is Cliff May, in order to scale, he actually decided he was going to license lumber yards and local builders to build his designs. Oh. So the Cliff May homes here in Denver were actually built by a company called Burns Construction, who was licensed by May to manufacture and build his product here locally. And of course, one of the local changes that they did is they didn't do the slab on grade. Thank goodness. Um, because here in Denver, you have to have footings that go down over three feet right. because of the frost line. So if you're going to do all that excavation to have footings going down three feet, why then do a slab? <laughs> it makes more sense to do a crawl space, which is what they did under these houses. So it's kind of funny then when I see people in California trying to do renovations and they're trenching the concrete and have piles of dirt in the middle of their house and it's plumbing and electrical is super simple in our house is because we just go down in the crawl space and do whatever work we have to do down there right yeah whereas here we have at least a four foot frost protection requirement and so we all have basements because once you've gone down four feet you might as well just keep digging but you're definitely better off for moving around for relocating things in a kitchen or for switching around the location of plumbing in a bathroom you can just change that all so much more easily (laughs) well it's fun to see so we're speaking of escaped california are there other enclaves of cliff may homes around so there are so in my obsession you know i have my map of the denver area where i've obsessively find found all the seven thousand mid-century modern homes in the denver area i've also been finding and counting cliff may homes across the country and so a great majority of them are in california thousands of them um i think my current count nationwide is is a little over 2700 cliff may homes across the country and i found them in 17 different states so the one in Denver is the largest tract outside of California with 170 homes. Number two is surprisingly Las Vegas uh, with a, roughly 120 homes. And then I think number three is Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas. So interesting. It's, it's interesting. Each of those tracks were built by local builders there. They weren't built by May. They were all just licensed by May to build his homes in their area. And some of them have regional variations, like in in Texas, they have some brick veneer walls on the outside instead of the cedar board and batten. Um, There's a little tiny track in Tucson, Arizona, that has all brick, all all brick veneer on the outside of the house with the weeping mortar, if you know what that is. That's where the mortar actually pushed out and kind of, it's kind of a sloppy look in some ways, <laughs> not every it's not as common in the Midwest. I'm not I don't think it holds up very well to the elements here, but yeah, I would think so. We we have a surprising amount of weeping mortar here in Denver for some reason. But that aside, um I've found them as far east as in the suburbs of New York City. Really? Yeah. 
Fascinating. Fascin- and always in an enclave or sometimes as a standalone? Um, sometimes in a standalone. That's pretty rare. But they did, Cliff May did have this notion of selling these houses as kits, kind of like Sears, where you can mm-hmm. just order a house. Um, but in most cases, it was a merchant builder who was licensed to build them and normally had had a local lumber yard doing the manufacturing instead of shipping houses all the way from California, which would have been, definitely been cost prohibitive. Um, and uh, they, um, they again, because of the, the they with the regional variations, they still did it um, flat packed. You know, so even though it might have been a short drive from the lumber yard to the site, they still flat packed them on flatbed trucks and erected them the way they were meant to be built by Cliff it May. Have, it must have been quite a parade to watch it happen, to watch them arrive. I'm sure. and be- I have zero photographs here in Denver, but I did get one one person described it as before the houses arrived. All the streets that were the Cliff May homes were just foundations and chimneys. So you had these streets that just had foundations and chimneys. And then the houses started arriving on flatbed trucks. Why did no one photo document that? I mean, they must right? have. I'm sure somebody did, but I have yet to find any. <laughs> it's, a, it's an ongoing search. You wish for like an eight track video or. Right. That would be amazing. Oh eight God. millimeter film of, of the houses going up. Eight mil- yes. This is my lack of AV <laughs> accuracy. Speaking of total sidebar, I'm just going to pause in the middle of this podcast to pitch everyone. As soon as it's available, I haven't checked yet. There was an amazing documentary at Denver Modernism Week screened there um, on the Airstream and its history. And part of the reason that documentary is so compelling is that it is filled with all of this original video footage and new great documentary interviews but yeah why didn't anyone take a whole bunch of like here it goes up fast here goes the next one here's the that would i would sit there and watch that yeah i i would think there would have been news coverage about it but i haven't found any so far and you would know so that is a perfect transition because this i want to get some of your expertise for my listeners on how they can research their homes. Everybody wants to know more about their homes. I think a lot of people imagine that their blueprints to their house are just sitting out there somewhere. And that's <laughs> so much. I less get that awesome. question all the time. And I, I wish that were the case because yeah. that would be amazing. Me too. But there are things you can find out. And if not just about your house, about the builder of your house or the year yeah. your house is being built. You know, the, the fortunate thing is because in the 1950s and even late 40s, we were moving into a time where there were more merchant builders mm-hmm. building neighborhoods of homes at one time. That makes a lot of the research much easier because these people had to advertise to sell houses. And so just as where I started you're talking about in my in the last podcast about how I discovered that my house was a Cliff May home by looking at ads in the newspapers, um, that's exactly where I would tell people to go first Unless they know that their house is a custom home, in which case it does become much more complicated. But if you live in a tract home, if you live in a merchant-built home in the 1950s, there's bound to be an advertisement for it somewhere. And once you once you start to then learn the builder and learn the name of the product, you might learn your model name. Like they they gave a lot of the models names. Yeah. Um, and then learn the features, the selling points of the homes. Once you have all that information, it becomes it's kind of snowballs. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes for a lot of people kind of an obsession, like, oh my God, I want to learn more. 
who was this builder? Was there an architect? What were they all about? And the, the biggest thing to me and why I've really kind of plugged this part into my real estate practice, I've, I've collected, you know, almost 4,000 ads for the Denver area um, because this stuff really excites people and it creates a pride of ownership that they didn't have in their home before when yeah. they know what its story is and what its features were. And um, and even just reading the advertising copy from the 1950s, it's it's a soothing thing to me because it was all so beautifully written. Like <laughs> well, they don't even yeah. put copy in ads anymore. Yeah, it was, be- it's beautiful. And um, I agree. I found my house wasn't even a merchant builder. It was a, a guy who did a house and then did another house and did another house, but I know his name oh, wow. and he did a house in the parade of homes in 52, the same year he did this house. And I found the ad for that and the little sketch and it's so delightful. It's, it really makes you feel like you it have is. discovered something. And then like with the Cliff May homes, you know, to, to discover that this isn't the only neighborhood in the country, like you could go to other sister neighborhoods and see the same product done in a different way or in a different place. That's okay. fascinating. And the, and the Cliff May homes aren't the only example of that. There were uh, the Hoffman homes where and they were a Phoenix-based builder um, that built into the Midwest, actually. They, they built in the Denver area, Albuquerque, Chicago, if you've heard of the Chicago suburb of Hoffman Estates. Yeah, I, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. That that name is totally familiar to me. And the thing is, when I was living in there in the Chicago suburbs in a 1970s era split level house, which I did love the split level, I thought that I thought that was ticky tacky trash. I did not appreciate <laughs> it. And now I'm like, oh, if I could just update that house, if I could backdate that house, if I could take out the remodeled kitchen and if I could put yeah. back in the cool features, I would sing songs about it. I would write epic poems about that. And then I, when I lived in that house, I didn't appreciate it at all. So yeah, Hoffman Estates. I agree. And, and there's a lot to be said about that. Now, the Cliff May homes here in Denver, they were just built with steel cabinets. And, and we ended up taking ours out because my wife didn't love them and didn't want to live with them. And, and I get it because they, were, they weren't the best. Um, but I encounter kitchens all the time that are these beautiful handmade birch or mahogany cabinets. And it kills me when I see people take those out for a couple of reasons. One, if you wanted those cabinets like that built today, you wouldn't be able to afford it. It would cost as much as your house to hire a carpenter to build cabinets at that level of carpentry. Right. Big challenge is just trying to get my head around. We actually did a big renovation where we took down a, a pony wall around our kitchen and reconfigured it. Um, and as we started by interviewing contractors uh, and started to find that everybody we interviewed had no idea what they were looking at. <laughs> yeah. So a big challenge was finding a contractor that really got it. Um, and, you know, the what, what the great service that you provide being an architect is that you can take any contractor and through your drawings and instructions, you can get them to do anything. But when you're a homeowner and you're just hiring a contractor directly, um, when you don't have a contractor that gets it, it's going to get really messy really fast. So I ultimately ended up just being my own contractor because I didn't trust any of the general contractors that we interviewed. So, I mean, I'm I'm blessed to have my design skills, so I was able to get away with that. But most homeowners can't. 
Yeah. And so that's a huge challenge. And you really bring in all the expert help that you can to, to help you navigate that because contractors will quickly ruin your house. If you, <laughs> if you, and with the best of intentions is the real tragedy because right. the reason that most houses, most mid-century houses get ruined by contractors, not because the contractors are trying to ruin the houses, but because they're doing what they think is the right choice for the house and what right. most people have been asking them for because it's what they've been seeing in a magazine on HGTV. It's what it was appropriate for a house of another era. And so basic, yeah, this is, I have slowly <laughs> and carefully focused and streamlined my business until basically what we do is try to give people exactly the amount of information they need in order to show a contractor who wants to get it, but does not know exactly what you're talking about when you say, isn't this a cool mid-century house? And they're like, it's a basic little house from the mid-century era sure and yeah, you're like yeah. no no isn't it a cool little mid-century house <laughs> i've got some great trim that'll work look good in this house yeah like here i've got some great crown <laughs> molding for your house and you're like yes. no, no, no. <laughs> so my goal is just to give people the information the visuals that they need to show a contractor like this is what i want no really it's simple and that's good that's fine i like it and then most most of my clients can find any doesn't need to be a contractor who specializes in mid-century once they have that vision. But yeah, when you're when you're just calling up contractors out of the phone book, they might not see what you see. In fact, the odds are that they don't. Odds are they definitely don't see what you so, see. So yeah, biggest challenge was finding someone who gets it. What about the most rewarding thing you've done for the house in 18 years? Well, I mean, I hate to say that my house is still a work in progress. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a, a lot of architects um, live in like, <laughs> Or live and work in the in the least designed spaces, and like engineers work in you know air conditioning engineers work in offices where the air conditioner is broken. It's like it's like you're you're always so busy helping everybody else that you never take care of yourself. Um, so our house is still very much a work in progress. There's still so much to do, but um, it has been rewarding to learn about my house and share it out to people in the neighborhood and in the city, and really see. The neighborhood transformed. Yeah. Um, so you know the houses surrounding us, although I'm getting a little jealous, um, are looking amazing, <laughs> which is kind of lighting a fire under my butt that I need to get more work done on mine. But you know, having that understanding and then sharing it with others has been super rewarding. It's something I'm really proud of. What do you wish you'd known before you started? Or the alternate version of that question is, were you better off not knowing what you were getting into when you started? That's a good question. <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. I don't know what I wish I had known. I'm glad we happened onto this house. <laughs> You've been, um, yeah, it's so fortunate to find something, as we said, I think earlier in this episode, at almost the almost the moment of teardown i'm sure you share this feeling to me it's so exciting to be in this moment to be that there are still single owner homes out there there are still a lot of mid century homes out there that have need maintenance work have deteriorated due to the vagaries of time but are still here are still standing and we can come in right now and call time out and fix them back up again and they'll last another several there are, there are still even though we we cry every time we see a house badly flipped or something like that there are still tons of opportunities. In fact, there's another, so, you know, with 7,000 houses in the neighborhood, of course, there's like tons of neighborhoods. There's another neighborhood um, 
that uh, I'm hoping to be listing house in soon, that um, it's for an original owner who has their house has never sold. And they were actually an interior designer. So that kind of adds to it. So they've taken they whatever upgrades they've done to their house were very conducive to the rest of the house, which is great. Um, and then in that same neighborhood, I'm going to be meeting a couple, a 99-year-old couple who still lives in their original home. And so these are things that I just eat up because there's just it's my favorite thing to walk into a home that somebody's lived in for 60 years. And, and a lot of times it is a time capsule. Like they've changed very little. Like it almost feels like the builder got so much right mm-hmm. that they didn't feel the need to go through and you know, really? trash the whole thing in the 1980s or something like that. And I just and that, love them. That happens too. I definitely find some single owner homes that I'm like, oh, look, look when you just, your kids moved out and you were like, we deserve a new kitchen and look what you did out here. But you know, it's it's so powerful to find a house that that really is a time capsule. And I have so much love for that. My grandparents actually bought a, bought a house from a single owner builder in 1953 and lived in it like a time capsule kind of sealed it parents did the same thing in the, and, in the suburbs of chicago in barrington um they had a they had a time capsule tri-level um that not much maybe the carpet was changed here and there but <laughs> in fact every time they changed the carpet out they would leave the old carpet in one of the bedrooms so it's almost like they have a, a gallery of old carpets Oh, that's really fun. My grandparents replaced their orange shag living room carpet with orange shag living room carpet. And they had to go to every carpet store in town to find one that still had it. But they did. They did this in like the early 2000s. And at that moment, everyone in the family shook their head. They were like, oh, my gosh, Art and Dorothy, there they go. And I didn't really glom onto that then either. And now I'm just like, I love that choice. That was amazing. But yes, my grandparents had shag carpet too. They had green shag carpet. So it was kind of like a lawn. My grandma, though, she would lose jewelry in it. So they they eventually stopped doing the shag carpet. <laughs> it's yeah, I don't know. I have a little I do the very millennial thing. I have a little ruggable shag runner in my hallway as like the nod to it that I also can take outside and shake and throw in the laundry rather than right. wondering what kind of dust mites are living in a mid-century era <laughs> history of shag carpet, but I love these homes so much. Well, there's never an end to this kind of story, but you no, know, we could go on for hours and hours and probably days. <laughs> so, well, this is, I'm just going to put you on the spot because if someone asked me this question, I don't think I could tell you, but what would you do next? What's your next, what will you do next? What's your next home tweak that you want to? Um, we actually have to finish what we've started. So <laughs> Um, we, we kind of got stalled in the middle because of it. Um, we had a couple of things happen in our family and it kind of totally pushed us off track and we just haven't gotten back on track yet. But one of those is that the dining room in this house is so small. The original dining room, we actually kind of folded it into the kitchen to make a pseudo eat in kitchen. And part of that is we actually put in an Island that is meant to have a lower table height portion attached to it. Oh, that will be our dining room table. So that makes it more space efficient because then there's still space to get around it. And that table, we actually have the wood. It's going to be a piece of live edge walnut that we just need to get finished 
and actually installed onto the island. So that's kind of the big next thing to get done so that we can finally feel like the space is finished. Yes, that sounds fabulous. And that's such a that's a great space saving design for if you're if you're fitting an island in where there's almost not room for an island. It island is. plus table at two different heights. I've just sketched that into a project in the last couple of months. So nice. Let me know how you like it when it's done. Oh I my will. god. Sure, I'll take plenty of photographs. <laughs> and where can people find you if they want to see what you're up to selling houses, see your fun research, see what you've done to your own house? Where should they go? Uh, the best thing to do is to um, follow my Instagram because that's where I'm most active. So that's at Modern Atom, A-T-O-M. Um, I also have another Instagram that's specially focused on my neighborhood, Harvey Park. And that one is at Harvey Park Modern if you want to see what Harvey Park is all about. I also run an Instagram called Cliff May Prefabs, at Cliff May Prefabs, where I'm just focused on the Cliff May homes nationwide. Um, so check that out. And then my photography Instagram is at Atom Stevens, A-T-O-M-S-T-E-V-E-N-S. And so those are all good places to connect to me as well. I also have a website, um, Modern Atom, A-T-O-M dot homes. That's the whole website address. And that I have a curated list of all of the mid-century modern and charming homes, including some 80s mods, because I've been really getting into those lately, um, that are currently for sale across the Denver area. So that's always a good spot to check to see that curated list of homes for sale. That is quite a list. Well, fantastic. And it's funny, I follow your Cliff May Prefabs account too, and I didn't know that was you. <laughs> nice. Um, all worth a follow for everyone listening. Well, marvelous. We're going to have to have you back to talk more about Denver, about Cliff May, about your journey about everything you've learned about how to learn things about mid-century homes. But for now, thank you. Thank you. What a journey that Adam Stevens took from buying a home he and his wife instinctively liked, but knew next to nothing about, to being one of the leading lights in our merry band of national mid-century fanatics. If you want to do the same, you don't necessarily need to hit the microfiche section of your library, although it wouldn't hurt. To recap, the more you know... The more you know about the history of your home, the neighborhood, the mid-century era in general, the more you'll learn practical things about the construction of your home, how to plan an addition that the builder already pre-planned for you, where you may conversely encounter unexpected roadblocks, and how to draw on the design details of the era to create a home update that's doable and delightful. Like I said at the top, this week and next are a great moment to spring into action on your home research and home improvement plans because we're about to begin another great Remod Squad group inside of the Ready to Remodel program. There's really no substitute for the wonderful feeling of doing it together. Sharing your know-how, your questions, and your enthusiasm with a group of other mid-century homeowners who all care about getting it right and getting their projects going is so motivational. I'll be walking this next Remod Squad through the master plan process, simplifying their home improvement plans starting on February 6th. I'd love for you to be one of them. So, are you ready? You can learn all about the Remod Squads and watch the free masterclass by going to the link in the show notes at midmod-midwest.com slash 110floor. Plus, you'll also find a summary of everything Adam just said and some of his microfiche research available without having to visit the windowless part of your local public library. These vintage ads and images are cool. Go check them out.